you are joining us as a visitor, we want to say welcome to you. It's good to have you with us. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, just look in front, the rack in front. You should see one there. By all means, grab that and follow with us. The second book of the Bible, Exodus and the 19th chapter. Last week, we began this 19th chapter of Exodus with a look at God's people who are, of course, a holy nation. Three months this holy nation, off their miraculous deliverance from Egypt by the finger of God. They arrive at Sinai, which is the mountain of God, where they'll be for the next year. And last week, we began this look at a holy nation, and by way of recap, with just these three foundational truths. Remember, number one, what God alone can do. We saw that. Look at verse 4 in chapter 19. Said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What a wonderful picture, but a picture that reminds us that God alone delivers. And the way that Almighty God does it, you see, with the picture of the eagle, with the care and tenderness of the eagle bearing on their wings. That was one. Two, we also saw last week, true of a holy nation, where God's people, where the holy nation are called to. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Note that all the earth. Church, this mission, earth, is the implication of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise, the covenant, we've looked at that multiple times in this study. Remember, flowing from Genesis 12 to Abraham and repeated, I will make of you a great nation. This is the original promise. And I will bless you and make your name great. And here it is so that you will be a blessing. And then we noted this last week, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Note the realm. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what God alone can do, where God's people are called to. And third, last week, we looked at who God's people are called to be. Look at verse 6. We looked at this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests. This is a collection of priests as one intermediary nation to all nations. The nation for the nations. That is what Israel is called to be here in Exodus and beyond, a holy nation. We noted how Israel's call has not changed in one sense for God's people through time. It's true here in Exodus. Thousands of years later, that's still the call to the church. Remember we read 1 Peter 2. Peter, under divine authorship, goes goes to this call of God's ancient people, and he reminds the church, he says this, 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Remember that? You remember that? So that the watching world would see us And glorify God because of our testimony. Yes, that's it. Just as our Lord said, teaching those first followers. 
When we talk about the disciples, the early church, that's exactly what Jesus was preparing them for in Matthew 5. Remember, we looked at this too. Note it. Matthew 5, 14. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Church, this is nothing new. Ancient times, early church times, today, this is nothing new. We are called to be a lighthouse nation today. That's what you're called to be today. As a holy nation today, a lighthouse nation. Just as Israel was called to be that light, so too we, so too we. We are a people called out, and listen, we are a people called out to call others out. You see that? We are called out in order to call others out. That's the way God has done it, through a holy nation. A holy nation to call other nations, to call other nations This is what we've seen to this point in Exodus, and it's where we pick up today. And today we will see, in the rest of this chapter, the holy God of this holy nation. That's what we're going to see today, the holy God of this holy nation. To set our hearts rightly, let us look ahead. This is a bigger chunk, so we're just going to go right in the middle. We're going to go right to the heart to set our hearts with where we're going, just to catch a glimpse. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up this is our text let's ask for God's help Father, as we consider this text right now we must be struck by the awe and majesty of the God described in these verses. O God, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. O God, help us to receive these wondrous things. And O Almighty God, give us understanding and application. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this passage, and we'll be looking at, by the way, verses 7 through to the end of the chapter, In this passage, we witness the coming down, and here it is, the manifestation of a holy God. That's what we're going to see. And with that revealing, we're going to observe today three responses by God's people. Not all positive, one negative, two positive, that are very much uh, an example for us today. These responses are timeless and as such loaded with insight for us, church, As we've seen so much in Exodus, have we not? This book, these verses, these chapters are just rich, rich with lots for us today. Let's begin, Westmount, with the first response. Number one, God's people consider and think. That's what we're going to see. Again, by way of a negative example, 
we're going to be stirred up to do the positive. God's people consider and think. Look with me in verses 7 to 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Moses now brings the message, by the way, which we've read. We just follow the account from verses 4 to 6. He brings that message That prologue, if you will, rich as it is, he brings those verses to the elders of the people. Presumably, by the way, when you think about elders, those are, remember the able men that we looked at in chapter 18? They were called the chiefs. Presumably, this is the group in view here. Moses, along with the elders, now set before all the people, they set before all Israel, what? God's word, God's command. Which, to this point again, and we need to stress this so we understand the context, to this point, it's what? Again, look at verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And all that we saw in that context last week. What Westmount we cannot miss here is what has been revealed to this point. There is no law from Moses yet. No words on tablets Yet, no finer points explained to this point. Just the call, the general weighty big call that we've looked at to be a holy nation, to be God's people. Think about it. That's been the call thus far, to be God's people. And it's true that call is lofty. It's high enough to sweep people quickly off their feet. Is that not true? In fact, that call is so lofty and it speaks to the deep desire of our heart that often we can respond to that call without giving it much thought. Often we can respond to that call without thinking of the implications of being God's people. And this is proven by the response in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The people answer. They receive that from the elders. They They answer and say, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. It almost, we can't know intonation and tone in God's word, but it almost seems like a methodical response. The elders say, yes, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, look at it, we will do. You know, what you don't see, and this is interesting as we set the tone here, you don't see any pause for thought. You don't see any kind of treasuring up in their heart to consider what Yahweh just said. You don't see any gap there at all. In fact, we can surmise just from God's word here, the way that the inspired word is given to us, they didn't miss a beat. Yahweh says, yes, we do. At first you would say, well, who wouldn't want to do that? And in one sense, in other contexts, of course, that is true. But what we need to see, and we're going to look at the lesson here, we're going to work at this a different way, we barely need to leave the book of Exodus, let alone the Pentateuch, needless the Old Testament, to see what that response really was, or how thoughtless it was. Is it not true, beloved, God's people have a habit of hasty responses? Something when you throw in emotion... You throw in some spiritual talk and there's just this haste. Oh, of course, of course, yes, yes, and yes. 
you know, we're reminded of the next generation. Let me just read one. There's so much we could have read here. Turn to Joshua 24. The very next generation who were taught what? Through Moses, you have an entire book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, where God says, give a second telling of this. Remind them of this when they go in for such things. So they have it. You have this now covenant renewal after the conquest at Shechem. And then Joshua 24. Let's just read bits of this account. Just feel the force in light of Exodus 19. And think of what all Israel has been through to this point. All the covenant disobedience to this point. The 40 years. Not 40 days in the wilderness. 40 years. You would think that would elicit a pause for thought for the second generation. Let's pick it up. Joshua 24, 14. Joshua, the now therefore, by the way, referring back to what the Lord has done. Nothing's changed. Now therefore, look at it. Fear the Lord. Don't let go of that this morning. Fear the Lord. And serve him in sincerity. There's a key word. In other words, maybe it wasn't that before. Now in sincerity and in faithfulness, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. There's a charge from young Joshua. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You're very familiar with that. You see it up in homes. It's up in my home, and it's a wonderful reminder not to be hasty, right? Choose today, and you'll ask the same question tomorrow. Today, who will you serve? And then tomorrow, when you get up, choose today whom you're going to serve. Israel demonstrates that they forget who they serve because of their hasty responses. And then this, look at this in verse 16. You would think there would be a pause for thought. No, then the people answered, listen to this. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. You want to just say, really? Far be it from us. For it is the Lord our God who brought us up of our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. That's right, he did. And preserved us all in the way that we went. That's right, he did. And among all the peoples through whom we passed, and the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, therefore... We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. You know, we could keep reading here, because we're going to affirm it again. The Old Testament demonstrates what this really means in the life of Israel. We have the life of kings, judges, Solomon, the returned exiles, over and over again, hastily announcing covenant fidelity, then disobeying hasty responses the entire old testament plays out with this hasty response with each new generation this is what we do is it not true beloved if we are not careful and think about what we're giving assent to and more than that the implications of our assent we too can be like israel now listen without commenting on israel's sincerity here which is another matter As we reflect on Israel's response here in Exodus, this newly birthed nation, we need only comment on the reality, as we think now of Exodus, turn back there, to Israel's consideration and thought. And what I've suggested to you already is that they haven't considered and they haven't thought. And I want to present to you a little diagnostic that I pray is true for us too. This is what Israel didn't do. 
Now, what I'd submit we need to do. We might ask Israel this. Israel, did you consider what it means to be God's treasured possession? Or did it just make you feel good? Did you stop and consider what it means to be treasured by Yahweh? Or did you just like the ring of it? Did you stop and consider what it means to be set apart? That's one. And two, fully devoted to him. Did you stop and think about the implications on your life, Israel? Did you stop and think about what it means to live as God's people among other people? It means you're not chameleons. It means you stand out. It means you're a megaphone and you're a beacon to the nations. Israel, did you stop for one moment to think about what it means to be a light to the nations? Or were you swept up in the inspiring thought of being called gods? Or were you caught up? Is it still the afterglow of the Red Sea? That was something God did. That was just something. Israel, did you stop and consider and think what it means to be a holy nation? And Westmount, I ask you, do you stop and consider what it means to be a holy nation? Do you? Have you stopped today and thought about whom you serve? Do you stop, consider, and think, I am part of a holy nation called to be separate and fully devoted to God? Today, have you thought about that? There is no gap or pause. Look at it between seven and eight. This is just the immediate response. Presumably then, and this is what we infer from the text, this was an eager response. Yes, picture it. A collective, vigorous head nod. Yes, we will do. And church, as we've been doing in this study, we need to digest, we need to grab hold of the lesson for us. I wonder how many professing to follow Jesus today have stopped to consider what exactly it means to be a Christ follower. What it means to be a slave and subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not flowery. This is fundamental. This is what it means to be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. It means this, Westmount, here it is. It means, first of all, like Israel should have, and like we should, it means you count the cost of following Jesus. You count the cost of following Jesus. Turn to Luke 14. If you haven't done this already, you need to. Count the cost of calling Jesus Lord. Jesus, as he did all throughout his ministry, teaching the disciples that would set the tone for future generations, that would pass on his word. And he says this, this is in the middle of so much teaching, and he repeats this theme, but this really gets to the heart of it. Chapter 14 in Luke, verse 25, follow with me. Now great crowds, note that, there's always a great crowd following Jesus, right? Right? There's always great crowds following signs and wonders every time. They accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, feel the force of this. If anyone comes to me, if anyone says, yes, I'm with Jesus. If anyone says, yes, I'm a Christian. If anyone proclaims to call Jesus Lord and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If we don't feel an arrow to the chest with that teaching in these days, I don't know what will do it. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, listen to this, desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it, look at this, begin to mock him. Saying, this man began to build... In other words, he was really on fire. He had a lot of professions. He talked about following Jesus, but something happened along the way, and now he's not finishing it. He's abandoned it. Now he's not able to finish, verse 30. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, you just look at a text like this from Jesus and you recognize maybe in seed form much of the problem today, do you not? People say, what's going on in the church? And I would submit to you, they have not counted the cost. I heard a, a brother not too long ago say, we, we need to not only count the cost with the persecution today, it's time to pay it. It is time to pay it. And you do not see that today at all. Failure to count the cost, that's the pandemic. Failure to count the cost. Of course, we have Exhibit A, And not only in the pandemic today, but beyond today, I think many of us have this in our spheres, hasty professions that we know from people around us professing to follow God. The haste of past responses, once with their own vigorous head nod to Jesus, expressing fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ, now, today, revealed for their presumption with covenant inaction. Inaction even as we are ordered to obey a law today, forgetting which law we are commanded to obey. Laws like the law of Christ, Galatians 6. Yes, as a holy nation, we need to stop and think whose law, who is our Lord that we're obeying. And just as the first true followers of Jesus did in the first century, they counted the cost flowing out of Pentecost. Is that not true? We love those accounts, do we not, in Acts? Oh, the heroes of the early church. Why are they heroes? Because they counted the cost. Think about this consideration and thought from these apostles. Acts 5.29, when they were told by the government, stop doing what God commanded you to do. Do you know what they said? We will obey who? God rather than men. Why did they do that? Were they fearful of men or fearful of having their lives taken away? No. They counted the cost of following Jesus. And they knew, like all Christians since, must know, if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, there will be a cost. Not only with the magistrate, but even for many of us here, even in our own families. There is a cost to following Jesus. Will you pay it? Will you pay it? It would do us well, church, to stop, consider, and think what God calls us to do. 
We need to consider and think the implications of this national truth that sometimes God's law will put us into conflict with man's law. Church, we count the cost of being a holy nation. Count the cost. That means we're not friends with the world, James 4.4. As a holy nation, God calls his people to be set apart and devoted to him. God calls a holy nation to stand out. Israel's hasty response here and future disobedience reveal much to us, Westmount. Let us not respond to God's call this way with haste. Instead, let us stop as God's people, as a holy nation today, let us stop every day. Consider and think what the cost will be this day. Because we choose him who we will serve, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what God's people must do before a holy God to be a holy nation. That's the first lesson we see here in response. God's people consider and think. Let's now look at the second. God's people consider and think. God's people also prepare and wait. God's people prepare and wait. Let's consider the next portion of this account, starting in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to a mountain, the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. We zone in there, be ready for the third day. That expression is the thrust of this portion of these verses. Be ready signals preparation. And after three days, it most obviously reveals time. Preparation that involves time. You put them together and you have this careful, measured preparation. It's important. And for a holy nation, there is a concept for that and it's called this, consecration. You've heard that word before. Consecration simply means to be set apart. You see this actually introduced. Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. That's what that expression is there. In fact, the root for consecration in our text is the same root of that which says holy in our text. And they both come from the same word, kadosh, that means to be set apart, to be made distinct. That's what that word means in the original. It's an active word to be set apart, to be made distinct. This is distinct, focused, intentional action. Here it is to prepare oneself, to ready oneself. This is the call of God on his people here. And here it is to prepare and wait to meet him. Here we see a two-day process that involved a number of preparations. Let's just look at them. Number one, the first preparation involved clothing, the washing of garments. 
This symbolic external practice is further articulated later in the wilderness. If you keep reading the law, you get more information about that. Especially in Numbers 8, it's associated with priests and the vital importance of the priests with their garments to be clean, to be washed, to be set apart. Simply, and here it is, much we could say about that, this shows that God's people being ready for God has never been just internal. They're preparing to meet God, very much a spiritual endeavor, but they're called to this external practice. In fact, as we see here, and this gets crystallized in the New Testament, we would say it this way, the external reveals the internal. The external reveals the internal. So that's one. Two, the second preparation involves location, setting limits around the mountain. And note it, it's the mountain. It's not any old mountain. It's the mountain, Horeb, Sinai, where Moses and now Israel meets God. In verse 12, we not only see limits set, but with these warnings, look at it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And then this, look at verse 13. No hand shall touch the offender. That's punishment where they're so unclean you can't even touch them. Don't touch the offender. He is to be stoned or shot. That is distance. Now you might ask, you're likely asking, what could possibly warrant such a penalty? You might think, why must they take care not to go up the mountain or even touch it? What's in view here? Well, that's a great question, and it will be answered, verse 16 on, so hang on to that. However, for now, we need to see the principle here, and it's this, that location has weight. Location has weight. Now, I need to preface what I'm about to say, to say I'm not throwing out an ecclesiology that says the body of Christ is not the church. The church is the body of Christ. And I just want to make that clear. I think we all get that. In fact, that's so fundamental. I think people have run to that as a safe haven for all things today. So we acknowledge the church is the body. However, however. Is it not true that we have swung so far in the other direction these days? Do you not feel that? I mean, we tramp on gathering like it's no one's business. We've just gone all the way the other way. And that's why people don't even think twice, let alone for a moment, about place. Nobody thinks about place anymore. No one values it. As if God is not in the least bit concerned with place and location. This text tells you something very different. And so, what's the implications of that departure from place? You have people divorcing their own bodies, right? Which are, by the way, temples of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6. People divorce their own bodies from what they do to them and what's being put into them, and they claim this, it's just flesh. It's just flesh. And so they abandon, at the drop of a threat the building that God provided for them, claiming it's just bricks and mortar, which it is. There's no doubt. That's exactly what it is. And cries of, we don't need it. We don't need it. The providence of God, as he always works when I'm preparing these messages, I was talking to my friend, who is an elder at a church you know very well out west. He just happened to bring up how they need to keep changing locations. You're very familiar with what I'm talking about. And he said this to me. I said, well, what has been the implications of this? Listen to this. Because they changed their location. 
He said our numbers have dropped in half. Do you feel that? But buildings don't matter. Locations don't matter. Listen to me. Do you know who many of those people were? People seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the only lighthouse they knew in Stony Plain to go there. That was the only one they knew. You'll have to pardon me this morning for my getting worked up about this. Buildings in their time, in their place, matter. Places matter to all of them. It matters. You are a light on a hill. Don't easily abandon the light for the sake of social pressure. Yes, as we see here, beloved, location does mean something. Listen to me. It's not everything. And don't walk away with the wrong idea. Jason's talking about how sacred this building is. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about going all the way the other way and forgetting the lighthouse that we are. For many people feel this. This is the only location they know of God's place. And when you abandon it, you abandon them. Location means something, always for God's people. Three, the other preparation involved devotion. Look at the end of verse 15. Do not go near a woman. You'd look at that and say, that seems odd. Just tacked on to the end there. Do not go near a woman. Now, a prohibition like that, of course, warrants some clarification. And we rejoice to say God is not declaring sex or sexual relations a bad thing here. He's not doing that. He's not doing that. Let's not make the ancient misstep that's often misunderstood. That somehow inherent with sex, it's bad. That's not what's going on here. Now listen, another caveat. For sure, there are relationships, any outside marriage, let me be clear, any outside marriage, any at all that are wrong and prohibited, And there are types, only husband and wife, right? Only husband and wife that are permissible by God. Anything outside of the marriage relationship between a husband and wife is wrong at all times, in every age, and in every circumstance. However, it is safe to assume in this text that normal, God-prescribed sexual relationships are in view. You would say, "Well, well, why is it prohibited? And Well, with that biblical act, God here is saying something as you prepare and wait, Israel. As you prepare and wait, refrain from this good thing. And this is loaded for us. This tells us that as we pursue holiness as a holy nation, at times as we prepare, we're called to abstain from things, mark it, that are good and right. This may be hard for some of us. At times, we're called to abstain from things that are good and right. We're not just called to abstain from bad things. That's our default, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Yes, it is good and right and necessary. Can I say that? It's good and right and necessary at times to lay aside good things. Why? For the sake of the great thing. It's necessary to do that. Listen, husband and wives... You are called to lay aside sex with each other for a time, for devoted prayer. Note that word. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5. You're called to lay aside that good thing. Christian, you're called to lay aside food. I love food just as much as you do. And we're called to lay that aside for a time for utter devotion to God. Fasting, it's called. Matthew 6, 16. Sustaining food, marital, physical intimacy, they're good things. But at times, we're called to abstain from them. Why? For the purpose of preparation, and here it is, devotion to God. 
you think about those things, and I think they tell us a lot, food and particularly sexuality, those can be consuming things, can they not? In fact, you take the act of sexuality. One of its blessed things is complete absorption with the one God has given to you. That is an act where God says there is a time where you lay aside that good, healthy, right thing to demonstrate ultimate devotion to me. Do you see how that is good? This is a good thing as it is for Israel. The New Testament teaching that we talked about, 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 6, we see in seed form here with Israel. Here at Sinai, God's people are called to prepare and wait in this way. Now, a couple things before we depart from this. We can't just leave it. This may see to some like a good thing. I thought God didn't withhold good things from his people. But beloved, I just want to be frank with you this morning. This is how far we have fallen. Because we cling and rationalize bad things so much and just try and throw up tokens as if we abstain from bad things, we can't even comprehend abstaining from the good thing. Do you know what I'm saying? We just can't even get there. We're here trying to rationalize holding on to bad things and then God comes over here and says abstain from good things and we get all messed up. I want us to think about that. Holiness is the pursuit of God in all things. Abstaining from the bad, that's fundamental. But often abstaining from the good so that you demonstrate your ultimate devotion is to Yahweh. That's one. Secondly, let's talk about failure. We say, well, that's just hard. And we see Israel fail, and they do. Israel fails. They'll demonstrate that they cannot prepare. They cannot ready themselves. They cannot consecrate themselves. Again, we've said it already. Over and over, we'll see them demonstrate this. The coming covenant expression that is the Mosaic law, which we begin next week, will reveal this clearly. And so if God's people are to be holy, to be consecrated, here it is. Let's put everything together. They will need help. And what have we learned in our study? We need help, don't we? In everything, we need help. I pray we're challenged again this morning with the idea of help. It's hard for us to say that, but we need help. If we're going to be fully consecrated onto the Lord, abstaining from bad things, we need help in that. But laying aside good things, we certainly need help in that. We just need help. And it's no surprise. Chapter 17 and 18, we've talked all about this need, this fundamental anthropology of human beings. We're dependent and need help. How can we do such lofty things like abstinence? And so we learn in the New Covenant by way of the New Testament, and this is important, that our fitness as a holy nation is not fueled by our power, our ability. Can you grab that? Our fitness as a holy nation is, is not because of something you can do or what you can achieve or what you can hit. The reality is we all will fail, right? But what is the New Covenant? The New Covenant it's not our righteousness, but whose? Christ's. That's the point. That's what Jeremy led us through. That's why we rejoice in death and in life. He is our righteousness. It's a beautiful thing. Christ is our garment. He is our robe washed. Our righteousness white as snow. That's Christ. That's who we put on. In the book of Romans, after 12 chapters of explaining how salvation is all the work of Christ alone, how we're justified, made right with God only by Christ. Paul then turns the corner in Romans 13, and this is then the logical outflow of salvation. In verse 14 of Romans 13, he says this, 
Listen to the language. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Do you see the language? Put on Christ. Don't put on your good works. Don't put on your efforts. Don't put on your tries. Put on the righteousness that's there and available to you that you have. Are you a new creation? Creation? The Spirit of God in you? Put on. Put on Christ. And note that. God's grace and deliverance to save and then the fitting response to put on. Christian Christ is your garment. Make yourself ready and put on the righteousness he's already given to you. And we would say Christ is our location. Rather than setting limits, we church, listen to this, we're found in him, aren't we not? We're found in Christ. This is profound. This is the great mystery. Paul was just so excited to unveil in the New Testament. Christ in you, Colossians 1. His spirit resides within every true, born-again, regenerated believer. Romans 8, 9, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 4. This is the great truth of the new covenant. We don't need to head to a temple to worship, but listen, we have something so much more for us now. Again, Colossians 1 tells us it's Christ in you. That means our 24-7 location is worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And thus, location matters more than it ever has. Location matters more than it ever has. I want you to think with me for a moment. Imagine telling a devoted Israelite, okay, you know what? I know you've never been in the Holy of Holies. But I'm going to tell you something. You're going to take around the Holy of Holies with you. It's on your person forever. The Holy of Holies will walk around with you. They say, what in the world are you talking about? I need a special priest on a special day. Could you imagine? It would blow their mind. No, you have the Holy of Holies with you all the time. Would they say, oh, well, that's great, and, you know, just sling it over, you know. No. The sacred weight, the Holy of Holies with me all the time? Do you see how we have just lost it? We turn it into a devotional. The Holy of Holies with you all the time, Christ in you. How can we not fall at our knees at such truths? The temple... The Holy of Holies with you everywhere always. Christian Christ is your location. That means you're always morning and evening making ready. And thirdly, Christ is your devotion. In fact, more than devotion, I think you see the implication here. He is your lived out life. Why do we have verses like this? Philippians 2.21 For me to live is Christ. In the original, it's just so beautiful. To live Christ. There's nothing more to say. To live Christ. To live Christ. That's it. This is not just abstaining from things. This is living out all things devoted to him. Beloved, hear it. This is eating, drinking, working, resting, suffering, enjoying, living completely. All to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That means, Westmount, that not just Sunday morning uptime... But Friday evening downtime is your worship. This Friday night, this Tuesday afternoon, this Saturday morning, are you devoted fully to him? Is he your consecration? In everything you do, not just Sunday morning. This is blessed, isn't it? It's wonderful. It fills a tank and all of those things, which in one sense, that's not even why we're here. We're here to give worship to the holy God. Everything else is a residual benefit. 
But we're reminded as we give worship on Sunday at the start of our week that every single minute of our week is an act of devotion to God. And I pray you use it so. Israel prepared themselves and waited. We too, church, do the same in Christ. One last response here. God's people finally tremble and meet. Verse 16, tremble and meet. We have previewed this portion already because it is indeed the heart of this passage. Look at the on-ramp for this passage. There's so much here. This is the heart of it now that we finally get to. Verse 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Good verse 16. On the morning of the third day. So in other words, after the two-day preparation, this is the morning of the third day. Now this. And what is this on the third day? Here it is. God manifest. God manifest or God revealed. Or as theologians call accounts like this, a theophany, a theophany, an open manifestation of the divine presence of God. No light passage, right? An open manifestation of the divine presence of God. For Israel here, God is revealed on that mountain. And beloved, I just need to say this. This is the holiness of God. What you see in this passage is almighty God set apart like no other. Our singing, as beautiful as it was this morning, can't even capture how worthy the worship is to this. This is Yahweh. Incredible. This is holiness. And I need to mention that words again, I need to repeat this with words that we have associations to. Words in this account hardly do justice to what is described. I was reading this week that many theologians feel like under the inspired authorship of the Holy Spirit, Moses simply used the best words he had to describe this mighty event, this real true event. But even as you look at some of these things, we recognize they're limited in our understanding. So think about the first one. Look at it, thunder. We've thought about that a lot this past week with all the rain, right? And you hear the thunder. How many of you love a good thunderstorm? I too. It's wonderful. That is nothing compared to what's being described here. In the original, the word thunder there simply means loud. In fact, it can be vocalized like a sound. Picture the thunder you heard this week, and this doesn't even do it justice, and picture a voice with it. Booming. Yahweh, booming thunderously. What about lightning? You think about the blinding flash, it gets oohs and ahs, right? You see it in the far sky. Throw out Not only that, but the cinematic thoughts of dazzling light, as good as those are. And I want you to picture a blinding, dazzling light that is so bright, it just envelops everything. It's dazzling and bright. Can't even look at it, it is so bright. I want you to look at the thick clouds there, and they mean dense. They mean heavy and weighty. That's what's in that word. It is not a morning mist. This is thick Heavy, dense clouds bearing the weight of Yahweh. I want you to look at the trumpet blasts like they always do in Scripture. 
trumpet blasts announce a coming. One of the best examples of this is found in Zechariah 9. And I read you this passage because in Zechariah 9, you have a conflation of the first coming and the second coming put together. You know the beginning of Zechariah 9, right? Certainly, I know you know verse 9. Talks about the king that's coming to you, mounted on a donkey. You know that prophecy. Well, later, not just the first coming is described, but the second And we read Zechariah 9, beginning in 14. Then the Lord will appear. This is his second coming. And again, note it, the coming of God will appear over them and his arrow will go forth, note the language, like lightning. The Lord God will sound the what? Trumpet. And will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. There's your Revelation 19 there. The Lord of hosts will protect them. Of course, you think about trumpet sounds, you don't only go to passages like Zechariah 9, you think also of second coming passages like Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, and on it goes. There, like here, the trumpet sounds to signal that the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. In the words of the prophet Amos 4.12, O Israel, prepare to meet your God. O Israel, prepare to meet your God. I love that. Now, what's the response of Israel here? How do they respond to God's presence? Well, it's a round of high fives, right? Just a round of high fives. Can you believe what Yahweh just pulled off there? That is amazing, right? You know, maybe you just picture in the crowd. Well, I just, that, that was a God moment right there. And me and God, what I saw on that mountain, that was just me and God. Beloved, I could press all kinds of examples of how we have cheapened our view of God. God moments, God vignettes, bite-sized moments with God. I cringe. That is not what you see in this text at all. No, what was the response, the real authentic response to the manifestation of God on that mountain? Look at verse 16. It is this, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp, what? Trembled. They trembled. The people trembled. Verse 18, the mountain trembled greatly. Beloved, I love you too much to say this. If you have a hard time picturing that, If you have a hard time imagining someone in fear and trembling before God, then I would suggest to you, you have lost in some sense a right view of God. If you can't picture this at all, that's not the God I was taught. That's not the God I know. That actually is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, of the holy word in your hand, is one that you tremble and fear. That's Yahweh, and we'll prove that more in a moment. Beloved, God's people tremble as they prepare to meet God here. Could that not be plainer in this account? They tremble. Now you will tell me. God is not to be feared. We run to him without fear, arms wide open. We run to God. I know you've heard that before. In one sense, for another time, a very different time, that is true. But not this time. Not most times. Before we comment on that very pleasant contemporary sentiment of people running and skipping to Yahweh without any fear or care at all, let's first complete the picture. And I want us to feel the weight of this in verse 21. Let's just see the end of this account. 
The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and what? To look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord. And why? Look at the warning, end of verse 24. Lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Friends, say what you will about the fear of God. But one thing is very clear in this passage. Those final verses would not be popular with the type of Christianity that's toted today. They're just not popular. A warning from God, God breaking out against people, that wouldn't be popular with the soft Christianity today, the pseudo-Christianity. It's just not popular at all. That kind of God. Look again. The text speaks for itself. Do you see the whole tone here? Approaching God has warnings. God has to warn the people through Moses. Look at verse 21. Don't go close or you will die. Don't go close. In fact, those verses are just chock full of warning that make one, quite frankly, tremble. Yes, here, this holy nation, God's people, tremble and meet God. Beloved, that is what it means to be a holy nation, to tremble before a holy God. In light of this reality, I ask you this morning, do you tremble before God? This text begs it, and we must end with it. Do you truly, to yourself right now, do you, do you tremble before God? Does the thought of God shake you? Does the reality of meeting God upend you? Friend, you need to just stop right now and consider, do you tremble before God? Because if you don't, If you have no fear and trembling at all, then you need to question what you fear. Yes, if the thought of God does not leave you in fear and trembling, be warned. And I need to, with that warning from the word, leave you with two things as we close our time. Number one, God's word and picture in principle, in teaching and command, demonstrate this through and through. It's just shot through the entire Bible. First, I want you to consider where we are in context, Exodus 19, and I want you to just look at this text again. There's no disclaimers here. This group of people for this time, you know, this really unique uh, moment in God's history, they trembled. As Jeremy and Joel, you know, that's your Old Testament cliche, those people that are fear and trembling. Like as if this is some dark corner of the Bible where, oh, Exodus 19, all the people are trembling. But everywhere else, they're loving and giving high fives. It's not that. It's not that at all. We don't have time to go through. I I was wrestling this week. I was telling my sons just the unbelievable amount of texts that I could unveil to you right now about fearing God and trembling before God. But let me just give you a few, the more well-known. Isaiah 6, what does Isaiah do with his theophany before God? He says what? Woe is me. I'm a man of what? Unclean lips. You feel like, woe is me. That's his encounter with God. Woe is me. What about Luke 5? You remember Peter in the boat? When he sees the spectacular, miraculous work of God, he understands this is no carpenter only. 
that just happens to know how to fish. This is the Son of God that made all those fish come in. And he's stricken with the reality of who's in the boat with him. And what does he say? Depart from me. Forget whether what Yahweh's perspective is. Do you see what this man says before a manifestation of God? He says, depart from me. I can't even be here. What about Revelation 1? John sees God and what? Starts going crazy. No, he falls at his feet. The text says, as though dead. Because he truly saw God for who he is in light of who he is. Well, and some would say... Well, that's fine. That's the first time they saw God. You know how it is. The adrenaline's going the first time you see God. Maybe you're thinking about that. The first time you encountered God. And after that, you know, things settle down. To that sentiment, I wonder if such fear is even true of some the first time. Right fear. True fear. There's far too much easy believism today. Again, current times just demonstrate that. So much easy believism, we have no concept of the fear of God anymore. We know fear. We don't know the fear of God. And more than that, God is not just feared at salvation. Here it is. This is so important. And you would say, well, it's a salvation thing, is it? Let's go to the New Testament. Again, Jeremy has set us up perfectly for this. Let's go to the God of the New Testament, which, again, for for sake of the argument, it's the same God, we know that. But let's go to the New Testament to prove this point. Philippians 2. The text says this. This is Paul writing to a church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So that's what you have. And how are you to work it out, Paul? With fear and trembling. Turn back a page to the end of Ephesians, chapter 6. Might seem to be buried in all these commands to husbands and wives and, right, employers and children and all of that. Chapter 6, verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. There's that word again, obey. With how? Fear and trembling. You'd say, well, that's bond servants, but look what comes next. With a sincere heart, as you what? As you would Christ. In other words, The way you live out your service and life to Christ is with fear and trembling. This is confirmed over and over again in the New Testament. In the New Testament. And I ask you again, is this you? Beloved, do you tremble before a holy God? People fear today and so much more. I resist so much right now. People tremble before men before earthly orders, before modeling, right? Before news feeds. People tremble before those things, don't they? They tremble like crazy. Latest statistics, the latest order. But beloved, here is the problem. They do not fear and tremble before Yahweh. You want to know what's wrong with the world? That. And I'm not talking about people that don't know God. I'm talking about the people that profess to know him. Do not fear and tremble before Yahweh. He is holy and almighty. Why did your heart race as you sang this morning? Why could we sing this over and over again? Because it's true. And we need to think about what we're singing. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. All power, all glory to him. No earthly person or order. Turn to Hebrews 12. I promise you we are landing this plane. 
Dave already introduced this, and we need to see this in context here because I know what some of you are wrestling with right now. Fear God. What happened to the love of God? What happened to the love of God? I don't fear God. I love him because he loves me. Praise God, that is true. I would submit to you, love of God is hand in hand with the fear of God. The illustration I want to lay before you this morning, and I know this won't work for some, but I take a great risk, is the father and the son. I didn't have a perfect father, but I loved him and I feared him because I knew when I did what Jason normally did during the day, what would happen when he came home and he would love me. He would love me and I feared him. And I know that image doesn't work for all of you. I understand that, but I want you to roll with me this morning. It should work for most The right fathers love and discipline their children, and the right children fear their parents because they know they're loved. Is that not true? And that's comfort and that's security. So let's abandon all of these protests about, I just love God, I don't fear him. You should fear God. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, by the way, Hebrews 11 demonstrates these are witnesses that what? Feared God. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. By the way, it's not just sin, it's what and sin. Weight and sin. Could that be good things? Lay aside the good things and the bad things. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's how it opens. Listen to this, go down to verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. And by the way, this is now in the context of being found in Christ. Your faith is perfected in him. You do nothing. You're now his. And here's the context. It's discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not what? Discipline. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. And we love them, did we not? Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, and look at that, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them, but then look at this, but he disciplines us, why? For our good that we may share in what? His holiness. Did you ask God to be holy today? Is that your prayer, to be holy? Well, he will discipline you because he loves you. Because he loves you. And then the final comparison. I promise we will be done. Verse 18. This is what Dave read. Now read it in the context of Exodus 19 and the beginning of Hebrews 12. I want us to end with this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In other words, that's not true now. In the event... Certainly, we're not looking at Sinai physically, literally today. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, what? I tremble with fear. But here's the contrast. But you have come to Mount Zion. 
Forget looking at it from afar, beloved. You have come to Mount Zion. The Holy of Holies in you. In you. The city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You want to talk about confidence? You fear God who counts you in his son perfect. I think you can get behind that and fear God rightly. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant in the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And we fast forward to this. What the Hebrews author does not do is throw everything away and say, but this is another dispensation. Let's get loving. Let's get running. Let's get skipping. Let's get absent-minded. Let's forget Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, connecting to what we just read, let us be grateful, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus... Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And why? For our God is a consuming fire. That's the New Testament. That is why we pursue holiness. That is why we fear God. Found in him, safe and secure, for our God is a consuming fire. I pray, no matter your stead today, that you tremble and you turn to him. Father in heaven, Lord, what... A weighty passage of scripture this is. Lord, forgive us for not trembling at you, at who you are, how you've revealed yourself through your holy word. Forgive us, Lord, for approaching you irreverently. Oh God, bring us back. Give us a fresh vision today of a holy God. Lord, we beg and pray in these times we need it more than ever. Let us subordinate every fear we have to you. Fear of God alone. God, we beg and pray in Christ's name. Amen.